My name is Rupal Patel, and my leadership lesson is to always lead from a place of self-awareness and self-analysis so that you can lead with integrity to who you are and also to what your organization needs. Hello, and welcome to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. I'm Antonia Gowat-Peel, Senior Staff Writer at Management Today. And I'm Ailish Cronin, Staff Writer at Management Today. In this episode, we speak to Rupal Patel, the author of From CIA to CEO, a manual for leaders and entrepreneurs. In it, she shares her learnings from more than half a decade spent in the intelligence service to help others to lead better and excel in their career and life more broadly. After leaving the CIA, Rupal went to business school and went on to become a serial entrepreneur. Today, she is an executive coach, advisor, speaker, and the chief executive of two companies. One particularly interesting point she made was that we can see all our actions in life as creating data, and we can draw back through this data to find out what we really value, what really makes us tick, as opposed to what we might tell ourselves is the case. And on a more immediate level, leverage it to boost our productivity, efficiency, and the value of our work. So we'll have that interview later in the episode. So on to the top stories from the website. We didn't quite clinch victory in the football, but it was obviously an incredible achievement for the Lionesses to reach the final. The success of the team shone an inevitable spotlight on their coach, Serena Wiegmann, and the scrutiny coaches face is something that Paul Simpson has looked at for MT. He draws parallels between how both are subject to what he describes as the tyranny of expectations and how both feel obliged to pretend that they can kind of square the circle. And this has ramifications for the attrition rate in both professions. So while this isn't as high for chief execs as it is for coaches, it's still significant. So in 2022, 23 FTSE 100 companies changed their leaders. Peter Cheese, CEO of the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development, says that our expectations of leaders have grown while our patience has diminished. As well as expecting them to have a raft of qualities, so to be empathetic, visible, transparent, we've also become much more demanding about how they behave, including prescriptive about what kind of management style we're willing to accept. So what did you think of this, Ailish? Do you think that we subject our leaders to unrealistic expectations? I think perhaps we need to rethink what our ideas of a CEO are. I think we've got to remember that real life is not always like what we see on TV. It's not like Mad Men. It's not like Succession. Although Succession may draw from real life in more ways than one. But this idea of a CEO is this sort of mystical figure who lives in his ivory tower. But they're a lot more human than we think. And I guess that's one of our jobs at Management Today is we're trying to uncover the human behind the title. I think we put chief executives on a bit of a pedestal. We have to remember that they're not God, that they're still human. And I think there's a little bit too much of a focus on instant gratification. And I think that's something that we've seen increase a lot since COVID. You see it in everyday life. There is a distinct lack of patience that I think the majority of the general public have because we've been so used to getting everything instantly online because we've been sort of stuck at home and we've been expected to adapt very quickly. If you think chief executives were in the same boat, they were expected to adapt just as quickly as we were. So I think that lack of patience can be attributed to the way that we think about the chief executive and view that role. I mean, yeah, that does almost seem to be a little bit of a contradiction there, doesn't there? Because you mentioned about us putting CEOs on a pedestal, sort of expecting them to 
be able to have all the answers. But then at the same time, no one wants to accept a sort of autocratic command and control approach anymore. So it's again about sort of reconciling all these sort of different almost contradictions. Mm. And I think that that sort of frustration is felt in the football world as well. So it was Jose Mourinho who, after he became the manager of Real Madrid in 2010, said, I'm a coach, I'm not Harry Potter, like you can't <laughs> expect me to work miracles. Mm. And I guess another difficulty is if the expectations of the people who are kind of looking to you are changing all the time. And I know that they can change very quickly within companies. So it does kind of feel like it's very difficult to sort of stay ahead of the curve on all of mm. these different conflicting things. Mm. And I think also the different generations that are in the workplace, they want different things from the chief executive. The younger generations that are coming into the office are much more focused on diversity and inclusion, ESG. They want to know about the morals and ethics of a company and they want the chief executive to be out in front. They're not interested in tokenistic things that, you know, CEOs give them like, you know, Friday afternoons off or a little party or something here and there they want actual policies in place that are going to benefit them more specifically not just tokenistic things whereas I think perhaps other generations perhaps have a more traditional view of the chief executive and they understand that old adage of businesses are purely there to make money. Yeah that's a good point about people having different expectations and things that they're looking for and I guess you can kind of also see that in the football world where perhaps a club has a bad season and there's sort of this demand for some head to roll. So even if the directors don't necessarily attribute that to the manager, they kind of might use them as the full guy because perception is so important. And obviously that's the same in the corporate world. If something's gone wrong at a company, quite often there does have to be a scapegoat. Mm. And sometimes it, it might be that person's responsibility. And sometimes the issue might be a bit more complex than that. Mm. Going back to the whole idea of football, when something goes wrong, you get all of the, the armchair critics coming out of the woodwork, ordinary people that have never done that role before. It's very easy to critique that when you've never been a football manager, when you've never been a chief executive, when you've never been in a leadership role. It's very easy to critique that. Yeah, I mean, there was a pretty sort of shocking figure in the piece, which was that it's estimated that relegation in the football world to the second tier can wipe 60 million off a club's revenue almost overnight. And so you can see how it's sort of this pressure cooker Mm. situation where, you know, just a few things going wrong can lead to that person being shown the door. Mm. And I think that's the same in the business world. If you look at going back to the sort of morals and the ethics of a company in the age of I was going to say the age of Twitter, but it's not Twitter anymore. It's X, formerly known as Twitter. But if in the age of social media, nothing is hidden, nothing is sacred. And again, going back to sort of younger generations or people that are more interested in the company's morals, ethics, stance on DEI, you know, they will be looking into that company's past. They will be looking into the actions of a chief executive. And now there is this expectation for people within business, especially senior leaders, to be held accountable. We only have to look at the recent Matt West and Coots case to see that the chief executive was the full guy in that situation. And by mutual agreement, she did resign. You can't hide behind the boardroom doors. And I think sometimes the sort of converse of that is that a CEO can be brought in almost as a bit of a band-aid on mm. like a bigger problem. And And, you know, sort of just bringing in a new leader isn't necessarily going to fix a wider sort of systemic problem, either within the 
company itself or kind of within like the wider industry landscape. Mm. It's interesting that towards the end of this piece, there's a, a quote from Peter Cheese and he says that successful leaders learn to focus on the right things and avoid what the writer Margaret Hefferman calls willful blindness, a decision-making bias in which we welcome information that makes us feel good and filter out whatever makes us uneasy. And I think that encapsulates this role of the chief executive. You have to do the hard things. It's all very well and good welcoming that information that makes you feel good. It makes you feel like you're doing a good job. You have to be able to do the hard things because you are the representative of company. You are the face of that company. Whether those hard things are unnecessarily difficult is still up for debate, I suppose. You've done an interesting interview of Riverbed Technologies VP of Professional Services, John McNally, haven't you? I think what actually particularly struck me of that piece was the parallels with RuPaul, whose interview we have later, in the sense that they've both developed this toolkit that they can apply in the business world from what, on the face of it, was a very different previous career. So do you want to tell us a bit about what you learned from John? Yeah, so John McNally, he joined the Navy when he was 16 years old. At the time, he felt that there were very few job prospects in the north of England, which is where he's from. And during his time in the Navy, he spent the majority of it on submarines. And he went through a a couple of quite scary situations while in a submarine. And those experiences taught him quite a lot of coping skills and the importance of remaining calm in high stakes situations. And that's something that he's brought with him into his tech career and his role at Riverbed. He told me a couple of stories. There was one instance where he and his team were in a submarine and there was water coming in through a hatch that hadn't been properly sealed. So they had to figure out a way of successfully removing that water while they were submerged. There was another time where he and his crew lost power momentarily and they had to navigate the submarine away from an incoming ferry. So these are all very high-pressured, claustrophobic situations. But all of those situations have taught him not only the importance of staying calm, but also the importance of relying on your team and having faith in your team. And I think often as a chief exec, as a senior leader within business, there is, again, talking about expectations, unrealistic expectations for you to be able to do it all yourself. But actually, John McNally said, and a lot of what a lot of other chief execs have said that I've interviewed over the course of my role here at MT is that you have to rely on your immediate team. And he said this quote that really resonated with me. He said, don't be a prisoner to things you can't control. And I thought just that was a really great. And I think everyone can kind of live by that. He was talking about situations at Riverbed where he's seen this happen in real time. There have been situations at Riverbed where the network for a trading bank might have gone down and it stopped them from trading and it's sort of costing them millions of dollars an hour. He knows in that situation that they've got the technology to help them kind of pinpoint why that might be happening. But in order to not allow the panic to take over. Focus on the things that you know you can do immediately, the things that you can control. And that helps you kind of remain calm and taking things step by step, which he said kind of helps you sift out all of the noise and the panic that might be kind of going through your brain. But I guess the main thing that he really kind of pushes for is relying on your team, but creating specifically that sort of psychological safety within a company, within your team, that people feel like they can question you or can come up with an idea and say actually 
I might have a better idea of how to do this and then accept that because he said 99% of the time they've got a better solution than him. So he recognises the importance of, of relying on his team. I thought that whole thing about not just necessarily swooping in as a leader and sort of jumping in to save the day, even if you perhaps do sort of have ultimate responsibility for mm. providing a solution, but kind of showing first that you've got faith and trust in the people around you. It kind of linked to some research that I came across about the sort of reciprocity of trust and how if you show that you have trust in people then they're far more likely to have trust in you and I guess when you have these sort of high stake situations you kind of do want to have that climate of trust and everyone is sort of assured of one another's competence and capabilities and in a similar vein recent research from the Institute of Leadership AQR and MT highlighted seven behaviours that help build trust and a few of these including for example openness to others ideas and suggestions consistency and showing that you understand the roles and responsibilities of those who you lead all also sort of seem to back up what McNally says. I think he said that the important thing is that if your team has cohesion and a clear united vision, then they can kind of deal with any of these sort of pressure cooker scenarios. Mm, definitely. Yeah. And that's something that he, when he joined the company in 2014, he started off as director of professional services and he felt that the company was struggling a bit with a lack of direction. There was a lot of confusion about what the company objectives were. So one of the things that he did within his leadership role was just try and get everyone on the same page try and as you said get that cohesive team first by asking himself what his role is what he's been employed to do and what his own objectives are before then asking the rest of his team and then coming up with possible ways to achieve those objectives it's again one of those things that he learned from the navy it's how to sort of get the most out of people encourage them to focus on their strengths, particularly in those high stake, high risk situations. So understanding your team, learning who your team is, what their each individual skills are, and then thinking, okay, we're in this high stake situation. Who do I know has got the most skills in this area that I can call upon rather than doing everything myself? And in our final story for this week, I recently spoke to Joe Seddon, who's the founder of social mobility tech startup Zero Gravity. So I'm sure that there were a large number of students celebrating earlier this month, thanks to the company's platform, which matches school students with mentors who are already in top universities to help them to sort of follow in their footsteps. So Joe originally set out to democratise access to Oxbridge using £200 left over from his student loan to start the company that became Zero Gravity. And today he's helped more than 800 students from low income backgrounds into those two universities and expanded it to sort of encompass other institutions. I think they're doing a pilot at the moment in the US as well, and also focusing on mentoring or facilitating zero gravity students to then get into top careers as well. So the company's algorithm uses data such as postcodes to build a picture of how well students have performed in the context of their background. Those that qualify for zero gravity's assistance are kind of the highest performing 15% of students from the bottom 40% in terms of social advantage. One really interesting point that he raised was that in his view, companies have evolved their thinking on diverse talent from looking at it in terms of their social impact to being driven by commercial calculations. So as he put it, he believes that the game's changed in the past five years because a lot of businesses now have very clear data that shows the link between 
hiring people from socially mobile backgrounds and business performance. Mm. I think class often gets forgotten about when we talk about diversity and inclusion. The more obvious markers are gender, race, and then perhaps age and sexuality. But I think class often gets lost in that a little bit. And, you know, you often talk about people falling through the cracks. There's a a waste of talent, especially when we're in this race for talent. Like he says in the piece, there is a sort of space race for talent and as you said, the world of work is evolving and this idea that you need to look at the best of the best, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be from the same socioeconomic background. Companies are kind of waking up to the fact that in order to generate business and productivity, they need to be inclusive and diverse in all areas, including class. Because when he says in the piece, and that's something that I think is talked about a lot, when talking about diversity, diversity of people breeds like diversity of thought. Yeah. You have different people with different life experiences, including those growing up in different class situations. You have diversity of thought. And I think that often gets forgotten about a little bit. Yeah, I mean, he makes that point. And another one is that he says that if you're someone who's performed incredibly well versus the obstacles that you've overcome, then you're clearly someone with a lot of drive and determination to mm-hmm. succeed. So He highlighted the example of KPMG, who were one of Zero Gravity's first clients. And he said that the reason why KPMG approached them was because they'd done this huge internal analysis of their workforce. And they found that some of the highest performing senior staff members were from working class backgrounds. So they wanted to kind of increase the diversity in their workforce because they saw it made commercial sense, which you could see in a very cynical way. But Joe says that he actually doesn't see it this way. He sees it in a good way if businesses can kind of marry what they think is good for their bottom line with what's actually the right thing to do then that's kind of the best of both worlds Mm. that's it for this week now on to the interview of RuPaul it's great to have you on the podcast RuPaul you're the author of from CIA to CEO which came out last year I'm sure the first thing that all our listeners would love to find out about is your time in the intelligence service. How did you find yourself there? It was not by design. So I was in graduate school studying international affairs. And my plan at the time was to join the Foreign Service, the US State Department, and live the life of a diplomat. And while I was studying for my degree, someone from the agency invited me to apply. And I thought, well, I never had the CIA on my radar, but why not give it a go? And that's sort of how it started. And I realized very quickly, the more I spoke to the people who were interviewing me, and it seemed like a really, really wonderful fit. So it was, like I said, not part of a grand design or plan in any way, but it was a wonderful place to work. And I'm just really, yeah, I felt really lucky that they invited me to join. Yeah. So I think in your book, you said that when you joined, it felt like coming home. Was that because it kind of felt like such a mesh with sort of the skills you had or what was it? Yeah, it definitely was that. It's, it was a place. So I am and always will be a self-proclaimed nerd. I love learning. I love expanding my skill set and pushing myself in new ways. And the CIA was a place that rewarded 
all of that nerdiness. So getting smart on issues, thinking through challenging complex problems, providing support to high level decision makers on their challenges in the foreign policy arena, plus then all of the cool training, right? The the weapons training and the personal security training and the analytical training. It was a really fabulous combination of, I think I put it in the book as sort of training my inner nerd and my inner badass. And it was a place full of people like that. So previously, I'd never been around people who were big brains, but also had a bit of adventure and excitement and sort of the adrenaline junkies of the world. And the CIA is a place where there is literally every kind of person, every kind of surprising combination of human being. And it was just nice to be around my people. What was it precisely that you were, well, not too precisely, but what was it that you were doing? What did your role involve? So officially, I was an analyst. And as an analyst, what you are required to do or asked to do is the way we often refer to it was drink from the fire hose of information that you are given. And that's everything from the intelligence that our case officers collect. It's all source information. So everything in the classified channels that we had access to, as well as the unclassified, you know, things like news media and other forms of open source information, take all of that huge volume of data or information, because it's not data yet, and make sense of it for the decision makers and the policymakers who are our customers. Yeah, I mean, it it sounds really interesting and obviously extremely challenging as well. I understand that you were in your 20s when you embarked on that role. And I guess another thing that I'd be interested in is what was kind of like the environment like, especially for a 20-something-year-old woman? Mm. Oof, uh, it was mixed in a lot of ways. Uh, As pretty much I would say most environments are. So there were many scenarios in which I didn't really feel like I was a 20-something-year-old woman because my expertise and my analytical rigor and, and tradecraft was the reason that I was in rooms with four-star generals and you know diplomats and, and cabinet members and senators, etc. But in other subtler ways, it was still very much a very macho alpha culture. Now, I have always operated comfortably in that sort of environment, so it didn't ever feel like a bit of a a stretch for me personally, but I was very aware of how I was received from the others who were perhaps a bit more traditional, a bit more, well, you're a, a young woman in war zone settings, a young civilian woman, and that I was an outlier in many ways. And I understand that you were there for seven years, was it? So you must have kind of developed personally and professionally a lot in that time. Yeah. How did you then make the move to doing an MBA and going to business school? So I was there for six years and it was towards, I would say probably around year four that I started to just consider whether I was going to be a quote unquote lifer or if I wanted a different challenge. And there was no compelling reason to leave. There was nothing I was desperate to do on the outside. It was more just, okay, well, I've done this for a while now. What else might there be out there for me? And then it just became more and more about trying to see what else I was made of. So I started to feel comfortable. And I don't like feeling comfortable. Not that it was easy or boring or mundane in any way, but it just didn't feel like I was challenging myself or the challenges would just be the same in a different scale. So 
there was no precipitous decision, but I started looking around. I started, you know, exploring what other types of jobs might be out there for me. And I thought, well, look, if I'm going to go into the private sector and enter the corporate world, I need to retrain myself to just learn the language and to feel comfortable with the fundamentals of what you know, a corporate context is like. And so business school seemed like the most logical way to transition. And as I said, I love, I love learning, right? So I thought it's a no brainer. I'll go back to school for a couple of years. If it works out, great. If it doesn't, I'll go back to the agency and at least I will have tried. Nice. And it was that thirst for knowledge and learning that kind of led you there. Your book is called From CIA to CEO. And obviously it's a very catchy title, but there's a serious point, isn't there? What kind of skills do you think that you acquired in the CIA that then equipped you to thrive or be successful in the business world? Gosh, I would say probably all of them. And so specifically, I would say the biggest ones are first and foremost, that resilience, that toughness, because as every one of your listeners will know, it's tough, right? Running a business, leading a business is not easy. It's not the sort of martini lunches that perhaps people think it is. And, you know, the swish corner offices, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of huge responsibility and a lot of requirement to be adaptable, to be agile, to be able to perform under pressure, all of these things. And at the time when I was at the agency, I didn't think, oh, well, this is going to prepare me for a, you know, a career in the private sector. But those skills of, again, resilience, adaptability, being able to operate in unfamiliar contexts, being able to be agile with your plan and your, your mission and your execution of it based on the feedback from the real world, all of that is directly transferable. So I would say first and foremost, that sort of core strength and resilience as a leader was a huge part of the skill set that I brought with me from the agency. But another one that is perhaps less obvious is a humility around how much we don't know. Because as an intelligence organization, of course, our mission was to acquire as much information as we possibly can but you never have the whole picture. And even when we were presenting things to the president or to a four-star general, there was always that, look, this is what we know based on what information we have available. But here are some of the blind spots. We were very, very upfront about the gaps in our knowledge because that's reality. And I think there's too much pressure, again, especially on leaders, to have all the answers, to know everything, to be able to foresee everything and successfully navigate every potential scenario. But the reality there is, is, is that there is so much that is one, out of our control, and two, that we cannot predict 100%. So the humility to know that you are only doing the best that you can given the information you have at hand, but always with the awareness that there might be something else that you don't know. And that is true from a big picture strategic perspective when you're planning and executing on a corporate strategy, but it's also on an interpersonal perspective. You know, when you're looking to promote someone or when you're having, you know, difficult conversations with team members or colleagues. And so to always go in with that assumption that there's part of this picture that you don't have access to. So have your opinion, but don't be dogmatic about it and be willing and open to having it changed or expanded in some way based on information that you might get later. Yeah, so that's really interesting. So to sort of just always have that openness, basically. And do you see any sort of parallels between how the intelligence service operates and how things play out or work in the business world? Yeah. So I would say first and foremost, it's around the planning, right? So 
we don't just go out into the world as CIA officers and just find things to do. There's always a purpose. There's always a focus. There's always a mission. And the same, of course, is true in an organization of any size. So you will have an overarching strategy and then each individual functional group or team, or again, depending on the size of the company, will have a specific way of feeding into that bigger strategy. But where there is often a disconnect is in what the people, again, in larger organizations, this tends to be a problem, what people experience on the ground, quote unquote, and what the leadership thinks is happening. So that almost that kink and that integrity of communication is a frustration that I see coming up again and again and again. And, and the work I now do with organizations and with executives is the leaders think they're saying and doing one thing, and then everybody, well, not everybody else, but others hear and see different messages. And so it's making sure that that communication channel, regardless of how big your organization is, always remains open. So I would say the challenges for, or not the challenge, the the fundamental role of a leader is the same, whether you're at the CIA or in any other corporate context, is to make sure that that integrity loop stays tightly closed, that you say what you do and you do what you say. And it's surprising how many times that loop isn't closed. One of the mainstays of the toolbox that you developed at the CIA seems to be that kind of analytical element. Obviously, your title was analyst. And you write that later in your career, you kind of turned this scrutiny on yourself and almost seemed to kind of undergo this period of radical introspection, Mm. if, if I got that correctly from the book. Why do you think it's important that we analyze ourselves? And what questions should we be asking? It actually goes perfectly back to that conversation we just had about integrity, because integrity isn't just about how you present yourself in engagement with the world. It's about how you engage with yourself. And I think so many people go through lives, their lives, we all do at different times and in different ways, without that self-awareness, that self-analysis and that that introspection. And when we make the time and create the space in order to do it honestly, many times it shows where there is a kink or a gap in that integrity loop where, you know, we might tell ourselves that we believe certain things, we hold certain things to be our values, but the way we are living our lives is not in alignment with that. And so I think that for me is the biggest benefit of, to the extent that you need to sort of sell the benefits of this, of that self-analysis is understanding first and foremost, one, how you actually operate, because so many of us just pick up our operating procedures from what we see around us or the way things are done in our industry or in our organization or how we were taught at school. And sometimes it just becomes a a habit that overrides perhaps the way we would naturally do things or the, you know, that maybe mutes certain of our strengths and amplifies, you know, only others. And so I think that self-awareness is key because you want to, my view is that you want to make sure that you're, again, living in integrity with who you are and what your values are. And so fundamentally, some of the questions I think are that are worth giving yourself the time and the space to answer are, what do I care about? And that's a big question. And it can take many, many different forms. And not just what do I care about? Like, what do I want to be able to tell people I care about? Because there's what we say, and then again, there's what we do. So part of that introspection requires looking back on your life and seeing what do the facts of your life say about what your values are. What do your actions and where you've invested your time, where you've invested your resources, et cetera, actually tell you about what your values are? Because you know what you make time for is what you actually care about. Whereas 
you know, sometimes we might tell ourselves, I'll give a concrete example of this. You know, there were many times in my life where I'm like, yeah, I care about my health and I'm taking really good care of myself. And then I'd look at the actual data about how often I was exercising or looking at my meal analysis. And there was a huge gap there. You know, I was saying I care about my health, but I was making time to exercise maybe once a week. That's not in alignment with what I say I value. So looking at the actual objective data tells you what you actually value because that will show you where you've been prioritizing your time and your energy. So what do I care about is huge. And then also, what do I want my legacy to be? Because all of us, and especially if you're in a leadership position these days, it feels like you're just constantly putting out fires or you're you know, running to catch up and there's always a new technology or a new disaster or a new you know, economic shock to deal with that we don't ever feel like we have the time to think about the bigger picture of our legacy of, of our lives, whether it's in our relationships or in our organizations. And so I would say, ask yourself that as at least as a starting point, you know, what, what do I care about and what do I want my legacy to be? And then be willing to to have a tough look at whether or not you are living those values on a day-to-day basis and doing the actions that will build that legacy in the future or not, and then make the corrections where you can. Really interesting to kind of think that we can see our life in terms of data and that we're creating that data every day, essentially. What was it that kind of inspired you to do that? Was it that something felt slightly off kilter or that you felt that you could be more fulfilled? It was initially, actually, not that I felt I could be more fulfilled. I initially started collecting the data because I thought I could be more productive. So when I started my first business, which is a real estate investment and construction business, I remember those early days and weeks and months where I would literally open up my computer and look for work to do. And I'd think, okay, well, you know, I've been so busy today, but what do I have to show for it? Or I've been, I feel like I've been working, you know, 12, 15 hours a day, busting my behind, and how come there is no progress? And I was so, yeah, I was exhausted by feeling like I wasn't moving forward when it felt like I was pouring all of this energy into to building this business from the ground up, literally and figuratively. And so finally, I just thought, you know, I need to know the I, where is the information. I need to start collecting the information very similarly as we would at the agency, right? And so it started very, very small with me tracking my time. And it wasn't this big, complicated tool. I literally just opened up an Excel sheet and I would put the hours of the day on one column and then what I was doing during that time in the other column. And after two or three weeks, I was aghast at what that exercise revealed. Because first of all, I was not working 12 to 15 hours a day. When again, in the early days of my business, when I was working from my tiny, you know, little box room home office, I was probably working six hours out of the day. The other six were, oh, let me make some tea. Oh, wait, but that load of laundry is just, you know, waiting for me. I'll just quickly pop it in or, oh, well, let me just nip out to the shops and quickly, you know, sort of run this errand, whatever it was. Working from home for me took away all of the structure that I had when I was in an office. I had never built a business before. I'd never worked for myself or from home. And so all of the structures, all of the scheduling, all of that stuff that we take for granted when we are in a more formal working context, I didn't have. And so all of the stuff that I thought I was doing, I was doing a lot of other 
totally unrelated things. And so that objective data was a huge slap in the face where I was like, oh, well, that's probably a huge reason why I'm not making progress. But then also looking at the quality of the tasks, because a lot of it was just reactive. It was someone sent me an email and I'll respond or I saw this, you know, potential project and the person called me back. So now I have to talk to them about this thing, whether or not I'm still interested or not. And that wasn't creating value. And so when I had that realization, I was like, okay, well, at least this tells me now that I was just doing the wrong things and I wasn't investing nearly as much time. So in a counterintuitive way, it was a huge relief because all of a sudden it wasn't like I'm just banging my head against a brick wall. It was, well, you're doing the wrong things and you're not investing enough time in the right things. <laughs> and so what I did with that information was I set myself targets, very concrete targets of how many business development calls, how many you know sites did I want to visit, all of these sort of things that I could count. Many things in life, sadly, are a numbers game. But it also then extended into sort of once that business built momentum. And I would say it was around year sort of five of the business where I started thinking, okay, well, what now, right? Like I've built and scaled this. I found a way to like hack my operating system and and be more efficient and more productive without working 15 hour days. But what next? And that's when I extended that, that sort of tool of objective data collection on the broader picture of my life. So those questions that I just shared, what do I care about and what do I want my legacy to be? I finally started thinking about those bigger picture things and how is this business or other things that I might do in the future, how are they building towards that? Um, so that's where it first came from. It was the productivity first and then the fulfillment came next. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's, you'd sort of say it's worth everyone struggling, a million different things, but it, it's really worth taking that step back and giving yourself that time to sort of reflect and maybe recalibrate and clarify kind of your aims. So I guess now you help other people reach this clarity and and that's partly in your capacity as an executive coach mm -hmm. what are the kind of problems that ceos are bringing to you oh so the biggest one i would say is the noise your listeners will probably be nodding their heads as i say this but it is just you are constantly bombarded it is relentless and it's demands from every potential stakeholder whether it's the board or your team or hr or an investor or a client or whoever it is there's just constant demands on your time and your attention and there's this again it creates this very intense environment in which you feel like you have to constantly react and respond because everything just seems like it's moving so quick so being able to find clarity within that noise, within all of the pressures around you to grow or to scale or to go into this new market or whatever it is. And it's, you know, hearkening back to the work that I did at the CIA. That's what it was like, you know, when, like I said, we were drinking from a metaphoric fire hose of information. The president doesn't need all those 10,000 data points, right? He needs it distilled and a clear-eyed analysis of those data points. And that's where a lot of what I do with a lot of my executives is to help them find that signal through all of that noise. What is relevant? What do they need to respond to? What can be parked because it's just another hair on fire request? So it's first and foremost dealing with that, that pressure. And then it's also dealing with the anxiety and the uncertainty of this rapidly changing world in which we find ourselves in. You know, AI has freaked a lot of people out. And I use it, you know, I say freak out colloquially, but that's what it feels like. There's this this really nervous energy in a lot of businesses these days because AI in particular is starting to challenge some fundamental way things are done, 
fundamental job roles and titles. And, you know, I say the word fundamental because fundamentally what will not change in any environment, in any context, is the need for good, clear-eyed leadership and people who can inspire teams, people who can get the best out of people, people who can help others ride that wave and that storm of anxiety and frustration. So it's helping the leaders I work with be that have that steel core of confidence and awareness of what's happening and what and, and empathy to understand what's happening around them in the organization so that they can lead through the turbulence that it feels like we've been experiencing nonstop for the better part of the past five years. So I would say those are the two two main things. It's seeing what's important through all of the noise and also helping them be the best leader they can be for the context that they're in because it's tough. There's a lot going on these days. Yeah. And in spite of all of that sort of noise that you mentioned, you're very much an advocate of kind of trying to help people create more sort of time, energy and headspace yeah. for what fulfills them. Is part of this sort of as an antidote or kind of preventative measure for burnout? Is that yeah. something that's on your radar and that you think about? A hundred percent, because that's the third most common thing that I, I do work with leaders on is burnout. It is real. It's it is relentless just from a work context. Then you bring in all of the other responsibilities from family and social circles and you know other networks and that everybody is a part of. And you just get into this rut where every day, you know, there's this great quote, and I, I can't remember who said it, but how you live your day is how you live your life. Effectively, right? Because most of us do, you know, with the few exceptions here and there, we do similar things day in, day out. And if we don't have a pattern break, that forces us to question, okay, well, can I build time in my day for things that fulfill me in a different capacity? Can I build some time in my day for hobbies that lead to absolutely nothing other than doing them for the sheer joy of doing them? Can I, how can I build in this time? Because it is true that how you live your day is how you live your life. So if you're constantly putting things off for retirement or when you get that next promotion or when you you know, transition to that different role or whatever that story you tell yourself about, oh, well, when this happens, then then might never come. And also, why can't then be now? Not in a, you know, not in a mega way. I'm all about being very practical with whatever changes we can build into our life based on the realities of our lives. So it doesn't mean going from, you know, working 12 hour days to then all of a sudden saying, okay, well, I'm only going to work six hour days and the other six hours I'm going to spend on my hobbies. That's not realistic overnight. You can build to that, but you can make micro shifts instead of, I don't know, some, you know, it's something as small as, Wake up 30 minutes earlier if you're getting enough sleep as it is, because sleep is important. Wake up 30 minutes earlier so you can play the piano or you can go, I don't know, play ice hockey or whatever it is that you enjoy doing that you've just let yourself stop doing. It doesn't have to be a huge overhaul of everything that you do, but I think we owe it to ourselves to make that time and space because like I said, it, how you live your day is how you live your life and you don't want to get to retirement and then not have the energy for the hockey or the writing or the coffee or whatever it is. And also again, not to be morbid, but the reality is, you know, it isn't guaranteed that there will be more time. So do the best you can with what you've got, but make sure you're being intentional, a bit more intentional with the time you have available and where you're investing it. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for your time, Rupa. It was really interesting to talk to you. And as mentioned at the beginning, your book, From CIA to CEO, Unconventional Life Lessons for Thinking Bigger, Leading Better and Being Bolder is out now. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Management Today's Leadership Lessons podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. We're available wherever you get your podcasts.